0: Last week, um, I probably got us off a little bit in the weeds last week talking about, um, you know, what we talked about. We talked about goats, a tale of two goats, I said. And and today, I, I really hope that I can engage your attention and keep you for the next bit of time. Because Honestly, I think that this is one of the most important revelations, pictures, realizations that I think I may have ever come to in all my life spiritually. And that's quite a that's quite a lead in. But there's something profound that has just struck me through all this. And so I want to I want to conclude that discussion with you today. And I know it's distracting and it'd be much better if I could give this to you face to face, literally with you sitting in these chairs. You got all the distractions around, but I hope you're going to walk away today with something that just cements, solidifies uh, what what is already a a great relationship with God through Yeshua. But I I want you to see Yeshua clearer, better, more powerfully than you ever have. And so last week we mentioned this apparent contradiction in the two goats of, 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 of Yom Kippur, which actually is our Torah portion this week, too. Emor, which goes through all the feasts of, among many things. But goat one, goat one, we said, was a purification offering. And we made that very clear that it is for the temple and it's for its furnishings. And the, and the Torah says that very clear. But goat two gave us a problem. That goat one was to the Lord, goat two was to Azazel. What does that even mean? But it's not a sacrifice. And yet from last week's Torah portion, dealing with that, we did see that it says that it saves our sins. Like it, 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 gets, it gets rid of things. And I, and I want to share this. Let me see if I can make this work um, better than this. Can you guys see that slide? We can. Okay, great. So real quick, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we already covered it, but we saw that last week, this goat that is not a sacrifice that has this weird thing related to Azazel, it says Aaron's going to lay his hands on this live goat, confess over it all the iniquities. They're going to go away. In essence, the goat shall bear on itself all of their iniquities to a solitary land. Okay? So it looks as if it did indeed remove all their iniquities. And the question you should be asking me is, how? How is that possible? Because you told us, Rabbi, that it didn't work like that. We spent 17 weeks in a Hebrew series talking about that. And now you're springing it on us that all of a sudden it looks like it does. So today, friends, we need to resolve this apparently difficult, apparently difficult, difficult uh, uh, contradiction. And I haven't answered the question how that happens yet, because first we need to understand who we need to understand something about who, who makes this happen because we have a few players, goats. We have goats can goats. We know that goats cannot remove sins. We know that from the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats Does not remove sin. So they can't be the centerpiece. The people, the people, are they there? They can't remove their own sins. They wouldn't come to the temple for Yom Kippur if that was the case. Who is the key player? Introducing the hero of the story, the high priest the high priest. He is the one Aaron and his sons down through the years until the temple was destroyed in 70. This is the agent. This is the mediator. This is the architect of the reconciliation between God and man. Now, God of course will be doing the forgiving, right? But, but Aaron, the high priest is the one who God has chosen to carry out this process and we talked last week about how the goats of Yom Kippur, they do provide sort of a metaphorical picture of Yeshua in the sense that we have purification, removal of sins, atonement. But the truth is that if we really want to see Yeshua in Yom Kippur and in, in this festival and, in, and, and what's going on there, we need to be comparing him to the star of that show the high priest, which is exactly why the author of Hebrews over multiple chapters does not spend much time talking about the goats. He's establishing Yeshua's authority. Remember that Yeshua is the high priest. He has a special authority. He's the priestly order of Melchizedek. So his legitimacy as high, as our high priest is the author of Hebrews big deal because it turns out in the end of the story that Yeshua is, is, is the superstar. He is the extra special guest of this show, if I can continue that analogy. But, and, and that has been designed from before the foundations of the earth were laid. That he was going to come together, that he was going to bring Yom Kippur and atonement together in this eternal redemption scale. But I want to let's jump back to the, to the high priest and the, the regular Yom Kippur. Here's, here's a statement. I don't care if you have two goats or 2,000 goats. Without a high priest, you have nothing. You have, in Yiddish, bubkis. Anyone know that word? You have bubkis. You have nothing without a high priest. Why? Because he is the mediator. He is the one. And this is why all of his right hand men, the other priests in the temple, when it came time for Yom Kippur, this is why the high priest was treated with this. This incredible treatment. I mean, he was, he was protected. He was sequestered for a time before Yom Kippur. The night before Yom Kippur, he wasn't allowed to sleep because there couldn't be any chance that he might end up with some type of impurity. So they stayed up with him. His right-hand men, they stayed up with him. They protected him. They assisted him. If he would begin to doze off, they'd snap their fingers in his face and keep him awake. That doesn't sound like much of a friend thing, but it was important that he didn't go to sleep. So he had to practice, practice, practice to make certain that he was going to perform all the, all the aspects of this Yom Kippur service correctly because it was incredibly important. He was chosen to effect atonement for the people of Israel. And as a reminder of that... This Leviticus 1634 from last week, it says, Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sons once a year. Somehow, the priest and goat one and goat two are dealing with intentional sin. And now is the time you ask me. We know who, how. What is the process? What is the transfer? What does this have to do with Yeshua? And there is one word One act, one thing, confession, confession, particularly a confession on behalf of those who cannot do it for themselves. The mediator, the anointed chosen restorer of the divide between God and man and all the sacrifices in the world were of no use without the words of the confession. Now, I want to look at that briefly because the whole challenge is answered right there. And trust me, I will connect it powerfully to faith in Yeshua. There are, it turns out, other instances in the Torah where it would seem that the iniquities, sins, intentional sins can be forgiven. Through sacrifice. In Leviticus 5, it says all of these words, which I'm not going to read entirely, but it, say, when he, it says in verse 5, when, it, when it, it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these, and it had listed a number of things above, that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. And he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed a female from the flock. The priest shall make atonement for him on behalf of his sin. We move to numbers five. It says this, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sins of mankind, any sins of mankind, that's anything acting unfaithfully against the Lord. And that person is guilty. He shall confess his sins and he shall make restitution. That's continues on to be a sacrifice. In Leviticus 26, God has given this whole list of things that are going to happen if Israel sins and breaks the Torah. And if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers, then he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive them. So there's something important. There is a prerequisite for forgiveness in any of those cases. And I made it easy for you to see it by highlighting it. What is the prerequisite for forgiveness? Confession. And he shall confess his sins and they shall confess their iniquities and confession. And that was later developed by the prophets and the rabbis into something that's called repentance, which is a very familiar word to us. We see it show up later as shuv, shuvah. Okay, And that theme of confession and repentance that the sages and even the contemporaries of Yeshua and the new Testament authors, they discussed it and they presented it. They presented it. Here is something very unique and interesting again, from the rabbinic writings that I want you to pay attention to. These are from Mishnah and from Tosefta. These are early, early, early writings. Mishnah, Yoma 8. The sin offering and certain guilt guilt offerings affect atonement. What that is saying is when it's not intentional, those things do their job. Death and Yom Kippur affect atonement together with repentance. We move to Tosefta, Yoma 4 7. Willful transgressions against the negative precepts. That means the now thou shalt not do this. Willful transgressions require. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in addition to repentance to effect atonement. We read again in Tosefta, the Chatat, the sin offering, Asham, the guilt offering, and death. They do not atone without repentance. Therefore, we can see again that the idea of confession or repentance is at the forefront. There must, there is a particular process that has to happen here. Confession must begin the process for the intentional sinner. It leads to something. It leads to a new state, a new status. And so, after the confession, sacrifice is brought and does what sacrifice does. What does sacrifice do? Sacrifice makes atonement, atonement. It removes distance. It reconnects us. It removes sin. It removes a stain. It restores relationship. But sacrifices can only remove unintentional sins, right? That's what we talked about. And so here we've gone full circle back to this problem of trying to resolve this. How did Yom Kippur atone for the sins of Israel? You could say, great, I've I've confessed, you know, I've confessed my sins, an intentional sin, but sacrifices don't deal with that. Now listen to this carefully, very carefully. I want you to listen to this Jewish theological statement. This is a Jewish understanding, a Jewish way of thinking that would have been in the hearts and minds of the disciples, of the authors, the writers of the apostolic scriptures. Here is the quote from Simeon ben Lakish. He is a traditional sage of the early period. Great is repentance, which converts intentional sins into unintentional. Great is repentance, which converts intentional sins into unintentional. On this special day. Yom Kippur in the hands and confession of the high priest in God's man of the hour, a confession was made for the intentional sins of the people. And that confession through God's man of the hour had the power, according to this understanding to transform their intentional sins into unintentional sins. Now, before you dismiss that, I need you to stay with me to the end, because that is extremely simplified, but I want you to understand a few things about that. Just because sins are removed does not mean that there are no consequences. If we're saying that unintentional became, uh, intentional became unintentional and now they're gone, it doesn't mean there's no consequences. Remember the mission that I read just above that said, Death and repentance affect atonement. There are consequences for sin. Also note the willful, defiant sinner who refused or rejected the idea of Yom Kippur, who, who that is the, the one who refused to deny himself, to humble himself before the Lord, and to actually put their faith in the confession of the high priest, and the process and the God-given power that he had, we're learning to transform intentional sins into unintentional. If you didn't believe that, if you didn't express that, if you didn't participate in that, you had no hope. In other words, there had to be an expectation that the high priest's work could work, that it would be effective, that his corporate confession, which was before the Lord, you remember, in the temple. That one must have repented so that the priestly confession could bring about this transformation. you, You still had a personal responsibility. You had to attach yourself to this. And even more importantly, you must understand the necessity of the mediator. Because willful sins, intentional sins... Even when you, 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 you could bring them before the Lord and say, Father, I'm sorry, they could often result in something the Torah calls karet. Karet means broken off, cut off, separated from God, from the temple service, from, from relationship with your community. And as we read above, those, those serious karet type sins could only be restored through Yom Kippur. And so we're cut off from the service that's happening in the temple. How in the world are we supposed to have Yom Kippur effective? Someone has to do it for you. Someone has to step in. Someone had to take your confession before the Lord on Yom Kippur. And here is what the high priest said. When he laid his hands, two hands, on the head of the scapegoat, These are his words that we find in the Mishnah. O Lord, your people, the house of Israel have committed iniquity, transgressed, and sinned before you. O, by the Lord, grant atonement, I pray. For the iniquities, that is the avonot, the willful sins. For the transgressions, that is the rebellious, horrible sins. And for the sins, the chatayim. So we're covering willful, rebellious, regular sins. Please, God, I pray that those that Israel has committed against you, transgressed and sinned before you, remove them as written in the Torah of Moses. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to purify you for all your sins Thus you shall become pure before the Lord. And so here to conclude that point is what Judaism says about the power of that confession. And this comes from a very, very, very ancient commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. I mean, on Leviticus called Sifra. By confessing the iniquities and transgressions they are turned into inadvertencies. And I know this is a lot. By confessing the iniquities and transgressions, they are turned into inadvertencies. And therefore, once they move from intentional to unintentional, they qualify for sacrificial atonement. Wow, this sounds like smoke and mirrors, Damien. Listen, the sacrifice does not remove intentional sin, but confession through God's chosen mediator here on behalf of the sinner converts it into unintentional sin, which then could be dealt with through this system. Here's the problem this is all happening on earth. This is in the earthly space of the temple for annual sins committed by the people, by a man who you remember first had to bring his own confession and sin offering. The priest first had to, had to confess and bring a bull offering to even be able to do this. So we know, we know something had to give. And here it is. We know that Yeshua is the high priest of a divine order, Melchizedek. He operates in a different venue, in the temple in heaven. And unlike the priesthood of this world, he is perfect. He has no need to bring a sin offering. Hebrews talks about that. He could offer atonement for us. But there is a nagging question that is often raised by anti-missionary types and critics. How? How? Could one atone for the sins of another? How can one bring reconciliation between God and man for sins that he did not commit? And furthermore, Judaism says, we don't need a mediator. We can do it with God. And how do we answer those questions? Well, I've just spent 15 minutes telling you, and here it is. God's appointed agent stepped in. This is in the earthly sphere, Aaron and his sons, the generations that came after him and by their God given authority, they made a declaration, a confession of repentance on behalf of the people for those who did not demonstrate any sense of repentance or acceptance of responsibility for those who didn't want to be forgiven, there wasn't any forgiveness. They were not participants in that, but for those who had faith in the high priest and in his ability to stand for them, to confess their guilt, they could, according to Jewish understanding, have their sins, willful, rebellious, hard, callous sins, converted through God's hearing of this confession into sins of inadvertency. That is sins that they didn't mean to commit sins. They did not want to commit and be reconciled to God to live again in relationship with him, restored, confess, convert, connect. Wow. That sounds Again, far-fetched, Rabbi. What, what biblical precedent do we have for this? I want you to try this on. There is no way. There is no way that we can enter into the presence of God in the sense of our relationship was severed at the garden in the sense that we were cut off from connection and eternal sense. The temple in heaven, which represents the presence of God, is is so far beyond our reach. Why? Because we are sinners. Because we do commit willful, defiant, rebellious sins, and we try, and yet no matter how hard we try to be good, we fail and we fall. Unless... Unless a perfectly righteous one could intercede on our behalf. Unless God chose a highest priest who could indeed enter into the heavenly holy of holies. And that is to stand, I mean, literally before the Lord and offer on our behalf a confession. A way that through his authority and connection to God our intentional rebelliousness and moral failure could be changed could be converted into something beyond us something that we don't want to do something that we don't mean to do if such a high priest existed the one who could stand in for us and in his righteousness if that existed right and remember When we talked about Hebrews and how atonement happens, we talked about the suffering of the righteous, and that's still in play because imagine this highest priest, and you know who I'm talking about. Unlike the high priest in the temple who offered that that earthly atonement, listen to the differences. Our perfectly righteous high priest had no one to care for him, he had no one to prepare him for the day of atonement. He had, that he, his ordeal, his trial, the night before his sacrifice, his right-hand men couldn't even stay awake for an hour. Nobody helped him. Nobody kept him pure. By the way, he was the furthest thing from pure by the time he hit the cross. The people honored and adored the high priest as he carried out the Yom Kippur. Our highest priest was spit on and reviled and hated. And still, still, the confession was made on behalf of the people. And I want you to hear this. It is a new way of reading this scripture as it relates to what I've just told you. Are you ready for the biblical precedent? The reality of intentional sins made unintentional by the power of a righteous confession. It is contained in these words. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Even in that statement before the death and the blood and the atonement and all that was to follow in that statement, for all who would believe in the power of this one to confess on our behalf, somehow the God who waits on us to repent, just as the intentional sins of Israel could be converted into unintentional sins and be atoned for by a goat going off into the wilderness— In this dramatically more powerful way, the intentional sins of the world could be changed and transformed, wiped away as far as the east is from the west, like they were carried away. And what did it take? It took the very same thing that Hashem had demonstrated for 15 years, 1500 years prior in the Day of Atonement. It took The gospel message, the true gospel, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he came and said. Why did he say it? Because he knew what he could do. He knew that he could offer the confession. And he told us, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I can take the confession where you cannot go. And I can transform. And to this day, the system still works in that highest priest, Romans ten nine. If you confess with your mouth, Yeshua as master, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The confession of the righteous Messiah, our high priest, forgive them, father, forgive him, forgive her on my merit. They have repented. They do not want to be that anymore. Transform their wickedness through my righteousness. Hear me stand on my behalf. Let me carry away their sins and let my sacrifice stand for them. And to borrow from the language of Yom Kippur, Just as the participants there on that day of Yom Kippur had to deny themselves, that was part of the prerequisite was to repent and deny yourself on Yom Kippur. So too our high priest calls us to a life consistent with the confession he has made. Live, live going forward after that. As if you didn't really mean it. Live as if that's not who you are. That's not what you meant to do. And Yeshua said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself, deny herself. Forgive them, Father. For they know not what they do. And you can say, but but we did know what we did and we do know what we do. Yeah. And you heard the good news and you repented and the words of his confession have given you new life, have transformed that into something that you didn't want to be. And his words and his merit change it. And now we see the true meaning of Hebrews ten twenty six, where it says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of the judgment and the fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries. It says, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the son of God and is regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed. He did something you could never do. The power of his confession And it sounds a lot like Numbers 15, where it says, if you continue in willful rebellion, I'll cut you off. You have to stand on the merit of the confession of the righteous one. And this is a rare departure for me in conclusion from my Jewish traditional brothers and sisters. You see, later this became repentance and and repentance is incredible. And personal repentance became the substitute for the Yom Kippur confession of the high priest later after the temple's destruction. And so Judaism now has transferred that in and says, you know what? We don't need that anymore. We can do it. We bring our repentance on Yom Kippur. You know, we don't we don't need a mediator. And Yom Kippur, listen, this year for us, and every year, it's going to be a beautiful and powerful time with God. And maybe, just maybe, for the sins of last year and the sins on this earth, it helps us, you know, to prepare better for next year. And it helps us transform. But I must disagree that it can transform us eternally for the world to come. It cannot. I cannot do that. We must have a mediator, a righteous high priest to stand on our behalf and confess. And it happened for all who would believe. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. My friends, as we read through the Parsha in more this week, and considering Yom Kippur, we can conclude, Baruch Atah Adonai Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, who delights in repentance and the text of Colossians resonates through my mind do not let anyone pass judgment on you in matters of food or drink or in respect to a festival or Shabbat these are foreshadowing of the things to come the reality is Messiah that is so true God has always had a way for the lost to come home and through our confession in the one who stands on our behalf and has stood and will stand we will be together in His kingdom, and may it be soon, 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 and in our day. Mashem Yeshua. We're building the kingdom, and thankful that you're a part of that mission. If this teaching inspired you, please consider a financial gift to support the work of Shalom Macon. Visit com and click Give Online. May the Lord bless and keep you.